Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's going to get us. It's going to get us all. What are you talking about? Why? Hello and welcome to the last episode of Still Watching Big Little Lies. I'm Vanity Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair, chief critic Richard Lawson. Usually on this show, we watch the episodes ahead of time and we kind of record our discussion ahead of time, but we did not have an advanced screener of the finale. So both of us have just watched it live. We were recording our hottest takes I've had some rosé, but not too much. Uh, literal hottest takes. It's like 100 degrees in New York. And because of, you know, sound stuff, I can't have a fan or anything on. So, you know. Yeah, we're, sh- we're schwitzing a little bit on, on either coast. So uh, we wish we were in uh, temperate Monterey. I mean, I know I know Oakland is usually pretty chill, but it's actually quite hot here today. So, um Anyway, we wanted to let you guys know this is the last episode we were recording for Big Little Lies, obviously, because the finale aired uh, tonight. Um, we are taking a two-week break, and then we will be back to talk about another HBO show. This time, it's season two of Succession. So still watching Succession is coming at you on August 11th. Uh, so don't unsubscribe. Uh, and, and two weeks gives you enough time if you haven't watched season one. Richard, do you want to make like a real quick case as to why Succession is a show people want to catch up on and and watch with us um yeah because it was such a sleeper hit last summer um that people were kind of catching up with as the year went on i really i really think that like all of a sudden on your feeds facebook twitter wherever you're gonna be like why is everyone talking about the show and it's because it had such a um a big build over the course of the past year so i think that like it's going to be a big summer show it's very of the moment it's both you know, pertinent in political, social ways, but also just a really fun, juicy, well, well acted soap. So it kind of hits on a lot of different uh, levels. And um, yeah, I predict big things for season two for that show um, in terms of its audience and the way that people talk about it. It's an interesting, it's a kind of a, 
I guess more traditionally masculine show. Most of the, of the main characters are, are men. This is about a, a family, a family dynasty, uh, who will take control as the patriarch, uh, played by Brian Cox is sort of sometimes ailing, sometimes not. It's a little, it's a little Game of Thronesy in the boardroom with one daughter and three so- or two sons and then like a bunch of other, you know, uh, would be havers of the crown. So, um. Three, three sons. I- Oh, three sons. You're, you're forgetting one. a loser who lives out in the Southwest, which I think is kind of the point. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Alan Ruck. Poor Alan Ruck. Poor Cameron. All right. Um, I'm glad you knew exactly which one I was forgetting too. Um, so yeah, three sons, one daughter, striving, striving for the crown. Um, this is a show that I ignored at first because I was like, doesn't look like it's for me. Um, then actually an ex-boyfriend of mine was like, you have to watch it. And so I finally did and, and I really loved it. Um, Richard did a great interview with Matthew McFadden, uh, who, uh, is not one of the sons, but is one of the strivers on the show, uh, for our other podcast, Little Gold Men. And it's a great interview. You, great performance love him on that show yeah. so. and, and i would say also as an additional selling point um at the end of succession season one you wanted there to be a second season <laughs> that brings us to back to big little lies um so as we i think we mentioned last week and and we've sort of been circling throughout our entire discussion of big little lies um this show had sort of a heavier lift than other shows because it needed to like prove its existence in the second season. There was a first season. We all liked it. It was supposed to be a contained thing. They went through almost the entirety of the book material. And so why come back for season two? Well, come back for season two because everyone liked it and it won a bunch of Emmys and the actresses wanted to like hang out and work together again. And you can't really blame them for that. But as like critics or critical watchers, we ha- our job is to wonder or should they have let like good enough alone uh, with the first season? And and I was an initial defender of the season. And now I think I'm a little bit on the other uh, side of that. Ar- no, I'm definitely on the other side of that argument. Um, but something we want to, we're going to like sort of break down the finale uh, and go woman by woman, uh, which seems to be a good strategy for us. I think it worked well last time. Um, before we get into that, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Andrea Arnold news that broke last week. After we had recorded the episode, if you listened to last week's episode, you would have heard a little intro from me being like, sorry, we're not going to talk about the thing everyone's talking about because we recorded this early. Uh, so here we are a week and a half late to the discussion of IndieWire's sort of big piece uh, from Chris O'Fault titled Big Little Lies Season 2 Turmoil Inside Andrea Arnold's Loss of Creative Control. Uh, we had sort of been talking about... Uh, we, we had some suspicions around this, I will just say, because, um, uh, for one reason, some inside baseball, like nobody was giving any interviews, not just like the big stars, but like David E. Kelly, Andrea Arnold, like nobody was talking. We had noticed that Jean-Marc Vallée and a bunch of people named Vallée were editing the, ep- the episodes. It was just like, we had a lot of questions. This piece, while not maybe the whole picture, starts to provide some answers for some things that we might have suspected. Um, if you haven't read it already, I don't know, Richard, do you have like any kind of, synopsis for folks if they if they haven't caught up with this article well the gist that i took away because you know we don't we still don't really know what was kind of said to andrea arnold at the beginning of all of this like when when she was signing the deal like what 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 did it stipulate you know what had been either tacitly promised or literally legally promised or whatever you know um but basically it seems that arnold sort of had her creative control over the season wrestled away by um you know, show writer David e. Kelly, uh, who brought back in John Mark Valet to edit and direct, uh, kind of 
direct and not sort of reshoots exactly, but just sort of retool the episodes that Arnold had already shot. Um, but a few, but a few literal reshoots. Well, yes, there were actual reshoots, but also like, um, you know, the question is really whether or not they were clear with to Arnold that like, you know, in the end we do want to unify big little lies. We can't have season one look and feel like one thing. And then season two feel like something entirely different. So it's really not clear. Well, how clear they were about that. And either way, it, it becomes this narrative of men wrestling control over, uh, away from a woman. Um, and none, you know, let alone a woman as accomplished and revered as Erin Arnold is. Um, you know, so it, it, it's a really, really tricky thing. And I think, um, made me think harder about, which I should have thought harder about maybe last season, uh, about how like this is, you know, one of the more defining sort of, um, shows about women that sort of presaged or, or just kind of arrived right before all the Me Too stuff happened in 2017. Um, and, uh, it was created by a man based on a woman's book and then directed by a man. And so it just kind of highlights that, like, who is telling this story and how are they telling it and right. how are they acting behind the scenes in the telling of that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I have a, like, I have a couple takeaways on this article. Um, What's true is that TV is not a director's medium usually, right? Um, usually on a TV show, a director comes in for an episode or a couple episodes, but it's like the showrunner's, uh, you know, pur- purview as to what the show looks like. Then there's something that we started to call auteur television, which really started to crop up, I think, the first time, like, I remember talking about it is around Carrie Fukunaga in season one of True Detective. But when a director and especially like a, an acclaimed film director takes on an entire season's worth of episodes, then you get this sort of unified look and they have some ownership over what they've done. Um, not, not as much as they would if they were doing a feature film, but still more than your average TV director. So that's true of Jean-Marc Vallée for season one of Big Little Lies. It's definitely true of Mark Jean-Marc Vallée in Sharp Objects. We did a lot of interviews around Sharp Objects and it was really clear how much he shaped that story. So I can only imagine that that was true for Big Little Lies season one as well. There's a script, but then there's also the way that he shapes the story. Um, they wanted Jean-Marc Vallée for season two. He said, no, I want to do Sharp Objects. HBO or whoever couldn't wait for him to be done with Sharp Objects. And so they said, let's go with Andrea Arnold. Right, because you'd have you to imagine absolute- with the yeah. talent that they have for this show that the window you have to shoot this is enti- is extraordinarily narrow, you know? And right. so when right. it's ready to go, it has to go. Um, right. Yeah, and you're, and you're absolutely right, Richard, that for me, I have two sticking points. One... Well, let me back up really quickly and say it is our impression, or, or I would say it is most people's impressions as journalists reading this piece that this is a piece that was given to Indie Wire from Andrea Arnold's camp. If not Andrea Arnold directly, like people who know her, this is the Arnold side of the story without it being a direct interview with Andrea Arnold, right? Yeah, HBO I mean, has like a sort of a canned. Yeah, HBO has like a can bit of like PR uh response in there. Like we couldn't have done this without Andrea Arnold, but it's not really like sourced on the other side of it. Would you would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I was just in Los Angeles uh for the week doing some stuff for 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 work, and um I had dinner with two friends who are actors, um, and and we were talking about this story, and they were like, "That's their that was their first question." They were like, "Who is this story coming from?" Because it, it didn't really have an origin, um, 
the point. And that's not to rush out and defend David E. Kelly or Jean-Marc Vallée or even HBO. It's just like it is a curious piece because it just seems to be coming from this place of omniscience that's like not necessarily delineated like who the sourcing is. I would. Yeah, I mean, I think the natural assumption is that it's coming from Arnold's camp, if not her directly. Right. And I'm not I'm not discounting the story. I just feel like it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's a piece of the puzzle I'm happy to have because HBO would rather we have no pieces of the puzzle, mm-hmm. right? So we have this. I would love to hear from the other side, from David E. Kelly, from HBO, from Reese or Nicole, who are executive producers and, and Reese, at least by, by all accounts, and hands-on executive producer. So my sticking points are twofold. Number one, exactly what you said. I just would like to know what Andrea Arnold was told. If she was told, we'd love for you to shoot this, but ultimately Jean-Marc Vallée is going to come in and shape it, that's one thing. And then my second sticking point um, in all of this is... I feel like we were sold this season. I feel like they took a lot of pride in hiring a female director that they tried to sell us an Andrea Arnold season without it actually being an Andrea Arnold season. And that is the part that doesn't sit well with me is this uh, message of, I don't know, sisterhood that feels, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a little, a little fake. And especially, you know, um, None of the, of the women who work on the show have commented on it, which I'm sure is like, you know, their strategy contractually, blah, 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 but like they've not said anything about it. So I don't know. It's just, it's, it's sort of sitting, sitting very oddly with me. Um, yeah, it's sitting oddly. And then it sits even more frustratingly when you look at this final episode and. All right. You know, sort of wonder game out what could have been had the person. You know, if you believe that IndieWire story, who had been hired to do a job, had been able to do the job that she wanted to do. You know, um, yeah. I mean, the scripts, the scripts were the scripts, no matter what. I don't think that Arnold really had any any sway over that. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe there was no way to, um, in my mind, redeem this season. But uh, yeah, uh, I had a <laughs> this this was a, this was a rough one. All right, so let us start with Jane um, because I want to start with a listener email. Uh, we, you and I had a very like strong negative reaction to Corey, uh, in last week's episode. And I thought that that's what we were supposed to have. And then we watched the, epi- this episode and mm-hmm. I was like, well, guess Richard and I were wrong. Anyway, so Carolyn wrote in to us, uh, and she said, uh, <clears throat> I'm writing about your take on Corey suddenly not being a good guy because he's pushing Jane to not give up on him. I really see this as the opposite of what you guys said. I think there are many times in life when people need others around them who love slash care about them enough to push them into doing things that are difficult for them. Jane, Jane is pulling away from Corey because she's damaged, right? But Corey knows her and he cares about her deeply. And I think that if he just ultimately gave up and didn't try to push Jane a little, then he would just lose her and that would be it. And Jane would be confirmed in her feeling that he likely didn't care about her enough to make the effort. I think that in all relationships, someone sometimes one person is to push the other to be the best version of themselves. It's a sign of caring. And I mean, obviously, if he continues relentlessly and gets creepy, then it becomes not okay. But him coming to tell her that he's not giving up on her, I thought was really sweet and was a sign that he's actually a really good guy who truly cares about her and Ziggy. Um, um, fair. Right, so but that, like, you yeah. know, you can send a text message. You don't have to show up on the beach unannounced. Yeah. I mean, like, I, the, Carolyn, like, obviously, Karen's perspective, Carolyn's perspective is the perspective that the show ultimately has on Corey, that he's a good guy, that it is Jane's trauma that's getting in the way of her trusting him. And that, um, 
you know, ultimately she's somewhat rewarded in this episode by letting him in that, that, that is, that is coded as the right thing for her to do in this episode. Um, I still think it's just, yeah, it, it, maybe that, that work encounter is okay, but still it feels boundary pushing because it's at work and she doesn't have control over how she can relax to that. And then when he shows up in the beach and then also like in this episode, when it's like her, small child giving her relationship advice no matter how precocious that child is i don't know it just it all still doesn't like once again doesn't sit super well with me but apparently i'm i'm wrong so i don't know well i i i really appreciate you know um anyone who writes in to us or anywhere else and has a kind of nuanced read on the show um because i love nuanced reads and i love different reads than when the ones that i have or the ones that we have on the show on this podcast rather but um I wish that the that the series actually um, gave room to that nuance, and I, I think that in this finale episode, especially, there was no kind of allowing for that, and everything felt relatively tidy and cut and dry. And so that my inclination, I guess, is to I don't know if there were to be a season three, maybe not give it so much kind of interpretive leeway. I guess. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd be interested to see, uh, you know, it's so interesting. Like this, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of it, but about whether or not we feel like there should be a season three, but season three exploring Corey's good guyism, uh, would actually be interesting to me. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, so what do we think of Jane's arc overall in this season? Um, you know, given that it ends with her sort of like, Smooching him. Like, we're going to leave out the very last scene because that's something we're going to talk about at the end. But up until then, you know, she's allowing herself to be sexual again, which feels like positive growth for her, all that sort of stuff. What do you think of her arc from the beginning of the season to the end? I mean, I think it was the most, it was certainly the most subtle and it was the most grounded in a way. Um, you know, and I think that some, it, it might be kind of tempting to call it simple, but of course there's, there are huge things happening, um, behind Jane's eyes, you know? Um, and, and I think that, you know, so much of the, the, the season was focused on Celeste and her trauma and what, you know, what Perry's absence meant for her and for her kids and for her mother-in-law that I guess it's nice to be reminded that Perry being not on the earth anymore, um, can act as something of a the the mechanism that frees Jane a little bit that you know that that like the the, the latch has been lifted in a way, um, and so to that end, even though I don't necessarily agree that with the way that Corey kind of persisted, um, I think that it's nice that she gets a bit of you know whatever existed before Perry. We don't really never really knew that Jane on the show um, right. might be kind of coming back. You know, I think that they were joking about like having fun and going out and getting drunk at bars and talking to people. And then at the end we see them having their own version of that. She's having a glass of wine. They're in the, the safety and like kind of protective realm of her home and dancing like they might at a bar. And, you know, like I thought that was sweet. And, um, yeah. you know, so I, I don't know. I, I, that, that was probably my least, um, despite the fact that like, you know, you and I were, were going a little bit hard on Corey last week. I still felt like that resolution was the most satisfying to me, even if that was a story that I was less invested in this season. I honestly feel like if they had just, if Corey just had not appeared <laughs> in last week's episode, yeah, I'd be like really into like every, you know, if you just totally. like delete those scenes, I'm like, uh, cause I was really feeling him up until then. 
And if she was just like, if she comes and confronts him and says she needs some time, and then he doesn't show up for all of the penultimate episode, and then he shows up and he's like, hey, let me in. And she's like, okay. Like, that's, I like that story. Because <laughs> I, I want to like him. We love that actor so much. He's such a cutie. And like, we want, we want this for Jane, right? We want a healthy, happy, like, uh, you know, being a, uh, quote unquote normal, like sexual being in the world. We want that for her. So. Yeah, and especially because um, the only way that a season three of this show could work, if it's if it's is if it's an Everwood crossover, and so obviously Douglas <laughs> Smith's brother Gregory was the lead on Everwood, so like we need to, you know we need to, we need to be in the good graces of the Smith family is what I'm saying. So I didn't know that. That's oh, I didn't. Yeah. I, Ever Everwood is a big a big blank spot in my um. I know oh, it gave well. us Chris Chris Pratt and Emily Van Camp, but that's that's all I know. So well, now um, I know what you're doing in our two week break. <laughs> <laughs> catching him on everyone all right yeah. uh let us let us move over to renata um in renata we get in this episode we get sort of a coffee shop confrontation with mary louise uh we get her sort of like in the courtroom um and i want to say really quickly uh we'll get to the full courtroom scene but like actually i think my favorite moment of the episode is when celeste shows the footage and you just get the silent reactions from mm-hmm. Laura Dern, um, every, you know, like everyone, all the women just sitting there reacting and being very upset. It was tremendous. And so like, I was like, Ugh, these actresses are so good. Why are, why is some of the writing so bad? All right. So, um, and then Renata comes home and Gordon has all, literally has all his toys. His playroom is intact. And then she goes ham on it and beats it with a baseball bat and then hits him in the stomach and then says enough, I'm done and kicks him out and then sort of like goes and cozies up to her daughter, Amabella. Um, so for me, I will, I will just take this first. This is extremely dissatisfying to me because I feel like if you plot Renata's arc for the season, it's like Gordon is a like piece of shit and Renata puts up with it, puts up with it, puts up with it and then does it. And that's it. And I just don't and like, there's no nuance like Gordon. He's just terrible and reveal like reveals himself to be more and more terrible as the season goes on. And like, I think something that you and I had a question mark about is like, why didn't she just throw him out? right away you know what i mean like that seems like what renata it would not take eight episodes for renata to get here and once again it feels like another like renata loses her cool so the the internet has some gifts about like you should have shown a woman some respect or whatever which i think is beneath laura dern who's a tremendous actress and she deserved more nuance i think you and i discussed my favorite part for her this season was the the party you know just like watching her take in Amabella and sort of like some of the improv Laura Dern did with like her coworker, her, her castmates and stuff like that. Like, it's just that worked for me. The Gordon stuff doesn't end the Gordon and her kicking Gordon out as like the ultimate payoff feels like, why didn't that happen in episode two? So um, what, what do you think of the Renata stuff? Well, as a gay critic, I feel that I can re- <laughs> reclaim a very offensive skit from the nineties, which was men on film and put on my little hat and say, hated it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yeah that's a that's a that's a damon wayans in living color yeah, uh, situation yeah right? exactly yeah. <laughs> Go consult your local youtube if you want to know what i'm talking about um i thought it was so stupid and i thought it was so like just meme ready and lazy and we've seen her do this I and mean, look yeah. the train set sucks the, the husband sucks beyond measure i'm not i'm Absolutely. not mad that she bashed up with a baseball bat but that should have happened in episode two you know episode two um, like there was Absolutely. no arc here. It just felt sort of thrown in because they wanted to get another big scene for Dern. And you're right. I mean, the best you know, Dern is such a subtle, beautiful, wonderful actress. Like 
you know, and, 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 and can work in all kinds of genres. Um, you know, and, and I just think that this is such a, you know, I mean, and look, far be it for me, maybe she's having a blast and if she is great, but like, I, I, I think that like fan intelligence is higher than HBO is giving us or the, the show creators rather are giving us credit for with this stuff, you know, like, like, you know, yes, like Twitter is fun, but like I, I participate <laughs> in that, you know, that, that, that realm right. of Twitter. And like, I like a good Laura Dern meme, same as the next person, but like this just all felt so forced um, yep. and repetitive, like you said. We had the uh, we had the, the, the thing in the yeah. mouth last week. We've had the you know the others. It's just like okay, like we get it, you know. Um, so I was I was kind of bummed about that. It just felt really um, you know beneath the show, right? And I was like waiting for Gordon to have like something interesting, you know, like what does she see him in the first place? And like, and honestly, it feels like character assassination of Gordon in season one, who I like. I didn't like like him or whatever. There's this whole episode in season one where like he has sex with her in her office. And it's like this whole thing where she's like, uh, you know, I don't feel like you desire me. And he's like, I do. And like they have sex, you know, and so for him to just be like slime in the core of him, slime, then you're like, why was her not ever with him? Like, why, why did it get to this right. point? Anyway. Uh, I mean, I think um, a great thing, you know, about his characterization in the first season was that he was so emblematic of those husbands on The Real Housewives, particularly of OC, mm. where you're like, these fucking shifty guys, like, they're so, like, cold and obviously duplicitous and there's something off about the relationship but like maybe there's something there like i like that he like he he was a kind of a character he was a trope but like he still made a little sense in the human world whereas this stuff where he's just like well i guess i needed something to play with or whatever it was like well that's just now that's like bad playwriting you know absolutely and i was like oh he gets to keep his literal toys i get it i get it men are all boys got it all right um let us zoom to uh another rocky marriage uh with a different ending this is madeline and ed um so madeline's arc this season is um ed finds out she cheated on him they have a rocky time of it and then in the end he's like no let's work it out and they renew their vows with their kids uh, and then like a, a pretty like cute sequence, like the Val renewal and the, and the storm and them running in from the rain and stuff like that. Um, but overall, like, and then, and then we also get a, a little bit of lip service, like her scene with Celeste in the car where she's like, I'm sorry, I should have seen this, you know, like that's a scene for Madeline this episode. But overall, like that's, that's the arc is like Ed finds out. She tries to make him understand that she's gonna like make good or, or not do something like this again. And then Ed forgives her and they try to take a, another clear eyed stab at, um, their marriage. There's a very telling line in this episode when Adam Scott's character Ed says something like, this isn't just like a tidy neat bow on this. Like this isn't a happily ever after. And I'm like, isn't it? Anyway, um, what do you think of the Madeline stuff? Well, to go back to Real Housewives, I did appreciate the little (laughs) joke about marriage vow renewal, because that's a big trope, especially on OC. Um, Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, it (laughs) was at least back when I used to recap it 3,000 years ago. But, um, you know, it was pretty. I I mean, you know, the inadvertent Midsummer reference was funny. Yes. Um, Yes. But I don't know. In that conversation where where, where Ed and Madeline are talking, um, very well acted by both parties. Um, and you know, 
he says, this isn't some tidy thing. I'm like, that's a reasonable grown up way to approach this. But then she's like, yeah, and our best and our worst. And he's like, no, 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 we're done with your worst. And that to me felt, I don't, I thought that was supposed to be kind of pointed. And then the end seemed more sort of hopeful and triumphant where I was like, that's kind of a shitty thing for someone to say. And it's even to someone who's fucked up a lot, you know, like, because it sets up this, this, it bakes in an inequity and it bakes in a guilt and a constant seeking of forgiveness and checking to make sure you haven't, you know, wronged the person again. Like that feels very, very, um, like that's, that's the P under the many many mattresses that will eventually start to irritate this marriage again, if that's how he's going into it, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. so I don't know, that did not feel like the happy, like reconcile, you know, recon- reconciliatory conversation that maybe the show sort of made it out to seem with this, the, the cute wedding scene at the end, or maybe I'm, you know, not giving the show enough credit and saying that that was, that, that was, de- that was deliberate, you know? I mean, maybe it's hard to know. Like, honestly, I think my read and I, and like, uh, you know, either I'm rusty as someone who like feels like they understand storytelling or this uh, season was is truly edited in a way that like makes it hard for me to understand intention. But like after my wild misinterpretation of Corey last episode, I'm just like I don't I don't know. I think the show wants us to see this as a happy new start. And you're right that like him saying no, your worst is unacceptable. I'm like, uh, we've, we've done yeah. that already. The, meaning you can see me at my worst. I get to be my worst. You don't get to be worse. Right. Like, then, I mean, I understand that in terms of a like eye for an eye situation, but like that's not how to build a relationship. You you have to kind of right. undulate and be flexible with it. And and I don't know. I think that's why I've never really liked. I don't like. I don't think Ed has ever been a particularly friendly person or 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 a very giving person on the show. And so it's been a little bit tough to watch Madeline and and the way that Madeline's story has been framed this season as this scramble to like win him back over because she, you know, transgressed. And I I don't know that, 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 that to me and not to like, I mean, you know, I'm a man too, but like, that's what felt like the most like a man writing this show. So, uh, our listener, one of our listeners, Kara wrote, wrote in, uh, and she asked, uh, this question is more on Brian for little gold men, but here it goes. Little gold men, once again, is our award season podcast. <laughs> um, depending on the release date, will Reese be up against herself at next year's Emmys with big little lies and little fires everywhere? I say this with all the adoration in the world because Reese is my queen, but she wants that Emmy bad. And it seems crazy to have both in contention during the same award year. Kara just says that that Reese would be her front runner for getting the Emmy f- out of the Monterey Five. Um, so, um, Little Fires Everywhere is a, is a you know an adaptation of a of a great uh, book that that Reese um, is producing and and co starring in. Um, and I think she would be considered supporting in both of the projects. So, uh, but she, would she, she was lead. Herself? She was lead for Big Little Lies last time, wasn't she? Oh, was she? I thought she was It was, was her and Nicole, and then Dern was supporting. Oh. But the other question is, my friend, how huh. is Apple Plus going to p- play the, the morning show? Oh, the morning show. What Which if Reese, Reese is in like, is every category? <laughs> right? Reese also needs to like host SNL so she could be in like that category as well. Let's, she needs to make an Emmy make... for Reese like Megan Amram did, or she yes. needs to like, dominate all categories, yeah. Let's make 20, 2020 recent every category for the Emmys. Um, <laughs> I, so yeah, so she like, she got her Emmy. 
as a producer, exec mm-hmm. producer of Big Little Lies. But yeah, it, you know, as we've discussed, it felt like a lot of Madeline's storyline was an interest of getting, uh, Reese that, uh, performance Emmy. If she's smart, she would put her into herself into supporting somewhere. And I think this season makes a better case for her in supporting than, than last season did. I don't know. I, I'd be very interested to be a fly on the wall of, of Reese's, uh, awards campaign, uh, team meeting. Um, yeah. Well, I think the, the first meeting of that was just the writer's room for this season. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they made a mistake not having her fling that ice cream. I'm just saying that's, uh, that's, yeah. that well, would have been. An- well, I sure Andrew Arnold would say you're damn right. They did. <laughs> Uh, okay. All right. So let's zoom over to Bonnie. Um, Bonnie is a character. So like Bonnie was my argument early on was that Bonnie was the reason why it made sense for this season to exist. Um, that the first season did her a disservice and that the second season had an opera, you know, an opportunity to make up some ground and give Zoe Kravitz a little bit more of the spotlight and some of the issues that Zoe Kravitz felt was like Zoe Kravitz herself was left out of season one, which is like this question of race and dynamics there um, into the second season. So uh, in advance of this finale, I should say not having seen the finale yet, um, Shamira Ibrahim of uh, Atlantic wrote something called what big little lies doesn't get about Bonnie. And uh, I'll just read like two pull quotes. You know, it's a great article. Please go check it out. But I'll read two pull quotes. Um, she writes, the show fumbles an opportunity to explore the implications of a black woman coming forward and admitting to killing an influential white businessman. The fact that black women may not be, be believed in these situations. And even the nuance of the detective who is doggedly pursuing the group being another black woman. Bonnie reconciling her trauma is an experience that she largely goes through alone, despite having a pre-existing bond with Celeste, who knows well the complexities of domestic violence and the guilt that comes with being victimized repeatedly. And so basically, like the 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 gist of this piece from Shamira is that uh season two really had like a, a chance to do right by Bonnie, miss that opportunity, you know, with a caveat in this article that like maybe they'll come through in the finale. So here's what I'll say about the finale and whether or not it came through for Bonnie. There is one line that I really actually genuinely loved in the finale. And it's this, um, it's from Nicole Kidman and she's talking to Madeline and she says, uh, to Madeline, basically we have a friendship and Jane, but the Monterey five or whatever we call ourselves, the lie is the friendship. And that it doesn't go all the way to fixing it, but I, I like that that exists in there coupled with what happens at the end where she's sort of like Celeste admitting this sort of quote unquote sisterhood that we've claimed to have for each other, the support system that we claim to have for each other. We've left a few members specifically Bonnie and Renata um, high and dry and uh-huh. kind of out of the inner circle here. We fucked up in this regard and the end can be seen as sort of a make good for that. So the a make good for like leaving, leaving Bonnie deserting her when she needed help. Um, that's a good self-aware aspect of the episode. It's still frustrating to see Bonnie siloed into her own story when like you have everyone in court and then Bonnie's doing what she's doing in the hospital with her mom and Nathan and all of that. Um, what do, what do you think of, of Bonnie in this episode? Well, I think it's a couple things with Bonnie. One, like she, uh, you know, I, 
I think that with regard to the Atlantic piece and how the, the broader season failed her, um, I, I think that there is maybe some unpacking to be done, maybe not by me, maybe not on this podcast, about the fact that the only character I can remember, um, you know, who, especially because she's also a black woman, comes into the show and says, like, points out the fact that Bonnie is an outlier because of the fact that she's black, is then also relegated to a stroke-ridden, abusive mystic you know like like i i feel like i feel like bonnie's mom's kind of wisdom and, and sort of insight is kind of relegated pretty quickly um to uh, not freak show status but sort of sideline kind of um the thematic device i guess and i don't know if that's really um where this should have gone maybe um i feel like it's it starts very strong. I felt like it started very strong. I really loved that actress, Crystal Fox. And then I think like from the stroke on, it just feels incredibly messy, incredibly messy. All of that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They really set something interesting up with Crystal Fox's character and, 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 and the Bonnie dynamic. And I don't know they delivered. Um, anyway, but for this episode in particular with, with Bonnie's kind of final arc beside the last scene where she's telling Nathan that, I don't love you. And I maybe never did. That also felt like, where is that coming from? Like, cause textually within the season, maybe I was missing things. Like I thought that her pulling away from him had to do with the guilt over the lie and over the incident with, um, with Perry. But I guess there was something else happening too. And, and again, I might've missed things, but that, that felt kind of like another instance of this episode, trying to give its actors big moments that didn't feel really either earned or um, contextual. Right. I uh, once again, I think I actually think Zoe Kravitz is quite wonderful in this role, mm-hmm. and I think she's quite wonderful uh, in in most of the season. I just uh, I it doesn't. I, I'm I'm ha- on the one hand, I'm happy that they decided they want to explore more for her. On the other hand, I'm unhappy with sort of like the back half of how all of that went. And I really, I I didn't think about it until I read that Atlantic piece that there really was an opportunity to better weave Bonnie into the story by having maybe like a bond with Celeste. Like how in- I mean, this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but how interesting would it have been? For Bonnie to maybe talk to Celeste about this abuse, for them to bond over it, and for Madeline to have some weird, like, the jealous, the petty jealousies that she had in season one about Bonnie, to have them revisit again, but this time in, like, a friendship sphere, the, like, ebb and flow of friendships. Um, I think that would have been, it's, you know, women, all, all friendships are complicated. I will only say from my own experience that female friendships are complicated. There are a lot of jealousies that can then involve and like for Celeste to have something that she could connect with Bonnie over and for Madeline to maybe feel left out of that. That's a very fertile territory. Once again, something that maybe might have occurred to a female writer that didn't occur to Davy Kelly, you know what I mean? But, but it better integrates Bonnie into the story to have like to have her have a connection with you know, one of these core three, um, you know, that I guess Celeste is setting up uh, herself, Madeline and Jane as a core three and Bonnie and Renata as satellites. And maybe that's something they could do in season three. This is, we're just going to keep like questioning. Is this something they're going to do in season three? Let's find out. Um, all right. Are you ready to move to the big, the big show? Celeste yeah. Let's rest Louise? our case. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so this, this, uh, email comes from my, my friend, Clint, who actually wrote in sort of unsolicited last week to be like, what the hell was that courtroom scene? He, he's a lawyer, I should say, clarify, uh, practices here in San Francisco. Um, and he gave me like a bunch of reasons why the legal, uh, aspect of the penultimate episode really bothered him. Um, and you and I were really kind of praising it. We're like, David, David Kelly back in the courtroom. This is not, we should say, this is not a legal documentary. So if you want to sort of take some poetic license, uh, with the legalities of something, that's, that's sort of, uh, kind of okay for me if it, if it, uh, you know, seems natural. And, and so whatever missteps there were last season, last episode, I was just sort of like, okay with it. in this episode, the flagrant disregard for like how <laughs> the law works and how courtroom decorum works, uh, finally got to me. And so I'm going to read you, uh, Clint's email, which starts, which I, which I made him write me, which starts in all caps. All right. You asked for it. Uh, and he writes, so as bonkers as last week's trial scene was, this week's scenes were somehow worse. In every court in America, Celeste's strategy of representing herself and somehow forcing Mary Louise to admit that she low-key murdered her younger son would never have worked. Mary Louise would have done the obvious thing and simply denied everything. Celeste would have looked like she was desperately hoping to connect on a Hail Mary. It would have been an embarrassing waste of time, only furthering the notion that Celeste had lost the thread. However, in Monterey Superior Court, Judge Marilyn... Cipriani's courtroom where there are absolutely no rules of evidence, civil procedure, or decorum, it worked swimmingly. Put simply, not a single one of the questions that Celeste asked Mary Louise was, uh, were proper. There were, by my count, there was, by my, my count, only one objection from Mary Louise's attorney. It was an entirely proper objection that Celeste was using her cross-exam to testify to something Perry allegedly told her. Perry is, you know, dead. This is classic hearsay. The objection was overruled. Shruggy guy of motor con here. Celeste also used her cross-exam to testify to things that her kids told her, that Jane told her, and that she herself wanted to stay. That's not how any of this works. And then, as Judge Cipriani is literally reading her ruling, both Mary Louise and Celeste simply interrupt the judge to give speeches. Neither lawyer objects. The judge doesn't mind. If you try to do this in actual court, you would likely end up in jail. To be clear, the result was correct, and the ruling that any judge in the state would have been obligated to make. This is not a close call. That's fine. We got drama. It was a legal clown show, but say la vie. However, my gods, Judge Cipriano is the worst TV judge I've ever seen, ever. I'll fully expect her to be Trump's next SCOTUS nominee. Um, all right. So, Clint, uh, that is Clint's, uh, uh, interpretation of the law here. Um, I will say, I think it's, uh, it seemed a little nuts to me that, that Celeste, um, suddenly discovered video evidence of Perry beating her and was able to like bring it in. And then this like whole twist, I should say our listeners emailed in and be like, I think there's something about that dead brother. I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a twist about the dead brother, blah, blah. And we're like, guys, no, that's not what this show is. And then I was watching this episode. I was like, well, fuck, that's what the show is. Okay. Um, legality, decorum and all of that aside, um, that this is a classic, and I tweeted this, a classic Perry Mason rule where Perry Mason, this, I don't know if you guys ever watched Perry Mason. I watched it a lot, a lot growing up. It was like a thing I did with my mom. A classic Perry Mason thing is like Perry Mason in order to like clear his client last second accuses someone else in the courtroom of doing the crime and they confess in the courtroom and that's it. Case closed. This happens every week on Perry Mason. And so for Celeste to be like, you killed your son. I was like, what is happening? Um, 
so that's my uh that's my rant coupled with Clint's rant. What do you think, Richard? Well, it's always funny when or frustrating also when something that's been good. I mean, arguably the the season of Baylor Lies hasn't been great, but like, you know, I love the first season. A lot of good things show their weaknesses in courtroom scenes because mm. as much as I love a good, you know, Matthew McConaughey in a time to kill or whatever, you know, oh, Denzel Washington so in Philadelphia. Like I love courtroom shit. Everyone does. That's why it's such a popular genre. Um, but court doesn't work like that. You know, court is boring. Um, and I mean, yes, sometimes sensational things happen to it, you know, people versus OJ or whatever glove, you know, the glove stuff. Um, Course boring and very procedural and very formal. And, you know, it's like watching Senate hearings on C-SPAN. You know, we, we want the big, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington speech, but it's mostly just like point of order, you know, all that boring stuff. Um, and, and this felt like a particular indulgence. I mean, I barely know what a law is. And I, and I was like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> like, right. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what happens there. Even if there's no jury and it's just the one judge deciding this, like, I think that like, because if this was if this kind of stuff was happening willy nilly, every single case decided in this whole county court would be up up for appeal, you know, because it's like all absurd. It's a circus. Um, does that mean that Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep were bad in this scene? No, of course not. They were great. Um, but like, I just you know, this it was just silly in a way that I think the first season of this show was fun, but it's always interesting when a series doesn't seem to understand what was good about itself, you know. And this yeah. felt like the, 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 that they even, I mean, obviously it's David e. Kelly. He has a long history with this kind of stuff, but, but that the show even had the impulse to do this tells me that like it's, it, it, it was, it was viewing itself as a, as a very different show than I was viewing it as. Yes. Um, something that like I've heard from a lot of our fellow, like our friends, fellow critics, et cetera, is when, when I say stuff like this is so unbelievably soapy, they say Big Little Lies is always a soap. And I don't know that I can disagree with that. You know, like Leanne Moriarty's book is, was like, that's a beach read book. Like that's, that's the kind of book it is not to discount beach reads. Beach reads are fun, but they're soapy and that's, that's what they are. And so like the fact that season one, um, has a lot of suds to it. Um, yeah, maybe I, maybe I can't disregard that, but there's just something about the way that season one hung together that made the soap feel like it had like to discount it as just soap was to ignore the very real things it was saying about um domestic violence and all these other things. And so I just, I find my ability to justify the suds uh and the melodrama of this season. You know, I, I just, I, I can't excuse it. Like, you, you know, last week we talked about how there were certain scenes where I'm like, this feels like a dream to me. I thought it was a dream sequence that this character was going to wake up and then know it was real like that, uh, Jane and Mary Louise thing where she was like, did you, you know, do you have a gun? Did you bring a gun? Is, did you come here to kill my son? You know, like stuff like that. Uh, and this week's episode, once again, when like Mary Louise shows up to Celeste's house and, and like, actually like every time something weird has happened we're like okay but meryl's really good so like at least we have that in that scene i mean i might be assassinated for saying this but like i'm not even sure meryl was great in that scene at the house where she comes and she's like no stop telling lies my boy you're wrong my boy i was like what is happening like 
what is this? I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I did not connect with it. It did not feel anchored in any kind of reality. And I just, um, I, I, you know, I, I hate to be too harsh on something that I, clearly a lot of people enjoyed, but it just, it did not hang together for me at the end here at all. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this about the soap opera thing. Um, soap opera is a descriptor that can be used in a few different ways. One is quite literal, you know, a, 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 a serialized drama that was sold by soap companies and, and, and other, you know, household product companies, uh, were advertised at least, uh, you know, um, on, uh, and then we kind of have expanded it to mean something that feels frothy or plot twists or melodramatic or something like that, you know. And I, I would say that the first season of Big Little Lies like hit at least the plot twisty stuff. But like, I don't think the show is ever melodramatic, really. You know, I think that I think that it's not, you know, it, it's not Erica Kane like you know, dun 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 kind of, you know, it was right. never that. Right, right. I mean, if we're going to describe the first season of Big Little Lies as a soap, well, The Sopranos is a soap then. It's just about a yeah. lot of characters, and I think that it's a very gendered kind of descriptor, you know. And 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 maybe I'm being a little bit too, you know, on my soapbox about that. But um, no, I mean, I, I I would love to interject really quickly and say that like calling season one a soap opera is a very dismissive thing that a lot of people said that like you know, um, Kate Arthur who used to work for BuzzFeed and I for she's. Is she a variety now? I forget. Kate, Kate just got a great new job. Congratulations, Kate. But she, she was the one at TCA in 2017 who was, to me, railing against a lot of, frankly, male critics who were discounting Big Little Lies season one as soap. And she was like, um, I think that's some gendered bullshit. And I think she was right. Uh, but I think season two, like, Mm-hmm. Uh, like fell victim to some of those suds. And I don't think it's gendered to say that. I think that that's just, it was some sloppy writing that was sort of backed up by, you know, some very conflicting, um, editing slash directing. Yeah. You know, and that was most frustrating is that in the first season, I really don't think it, 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 it was, um, kind of fair to paint it with that, that sort of broad brush. And in this season, it's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, like, like, yeah. it, you know, culminating in, in that, those court scenes, which, um, I, you know, were entertaining, but like, I didn't believe any of it for a second. And that it makes it that much harder to connect not only to the sort of emotional beats of the moment, but also the performances, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've been kind of, wanting this to be the kind of great Meryl Streep return to um, a slightly less draggy version of, of her acting. And, and I think it was there. It fits and starts this season, but by the end of this, I, I don't know. Um, I, it, it, it did just seem like a lot of, uh, you know, flustering and awake to be, to be blunt about it. Can I, can I actually say, can I say one more thing about the, the courtroom oh, scene? Sorry. That I just reminded of. Um, yeah. Hit me. There was one last thing I wanted to say about the courtroom scene, and in particular, um, Celeste, when she's kind of speaking her case to the court, is when she says that she did all she, you know, her best. She said, "I kept them alive. I kept myself alive." And like, I, you know, however you want to frame life under an abusive partner, I thought that was super powerful. Um, yeah, and, and, and as a way of thinking, like that was a struggle to even do that, you know, to sort of manage the both. I mean, I mean, how, how much control you have over your physical well-being, I guess, but like to manage the, 
the really scary mercurial whims of this guy like like and again not saying the onus was on her to do that but she did do it long enough you know to to get the apartment to try to leave you know so i thought that was an, a, a really crucial sort of thing for her to sort of assert in there that that made us remember what kind of ordeal she was living under i guess yes which like which is um it's tough when those moments shine through. Like I said, that reaction shot with all the other actresses as they're watching that footage, when those moments shine through, you're like, I want to love this season of Big Little Lies. It's saying something, it's saying some very important things, uh, extremely important things. And, um, so I want it to be great. I'm rooting for it. I'm rooting for all these actresses. I'm rooting for the subject matter that they're trying to tackle. And I think it's a shame that, uh, it, it just really failed to hit the, you know, the high bar that season one set. Mm-hmm. And that, that once again was, you know, unfair or not the challenge it had, uh, to justify its existence. All right. So let us, let us then like veer, um, over to the ending, which where, you know, we see Bonnie text Madeline. Uh, I, I confess I did not pause to squint at the text. Uh, but you know, the gist it says, uh, LOL, you up. Yeah. <laughs> LOL, you up going to go confess to murder, yeah. uh, or self-defense or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, uh, Bonnie says, basically, I'm going to the cops. Madeline texts, uh, Celeste. Someone texts Jane and Renata and they all decide to go in together, sort of paying off that earlier line where Celeste says, like, the friendship was a lie. This is them actually showing up for each other as as an actual support system for each other in the end. Uh, and they walk into the police station, which felt like the inevitable place that this, you know, this season of like, okay, what do you do when you lie and say, what's, if your big little lie is we didn't commit the murder at the end of the season is like, somehow they all have to reckon with that. Um, and then, you know, that sets up season three, I guess. And I should just say really quickly that, uh, speaking with News Corps Australia, like the, you know, the women of Big Little Lies, the, the main actresses have, have not been giving a lot of press. Um, Maybe because of this Andrea Arnold thing, I don't know. But Nicole Kimpton was talking to, you know, hometown News Corps Australia. And she says, I think we'd love to do a season three because there are certainly ideas, but we would not do it without all the same people involved, even the kids. Uh, you know, and she's like, there's so much more to come. So basically, like, we have more stories to tell, more to tell in season three, which is sort of similar to what they were saying at the end of season two. So my question to you, Richard, uh, is does this ending feel satisf- satisfied and or self-contained to you or does it feel like a really clear swing towards to be continued? Well, I really want to see the gang go to Abu Dhabi, you know, I think that would be so <laughs> fun. Um, that's worked out well in the past. Um, sorry. You know, I felt like, I, I'm sorry. I just love, I love yeah. a sex in the city reference. Just okay. FYI, that's, People didn't know what Richard was doing. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, Sex and City two for those. It's on. It's on. Uh, Nef- uh, well, no, sorry. It's on. It's on Delta's um, on demand thing. Anyway, um, wait. Did you I, wa- did you watch it on your flight? Is that is that why so it's a fresh tempted. reference for you? No, I, I watched five feet apart instead. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, because Teen Weepies, by the way, like like Fault in Our Stars knockoffs are great to watch on planes. Yeah. Because you're more susceptible oh to crying. Yes. You never see them normally, so that's my Love recommendation. It. Anyway, um I 
I don't know. I'm of I'm of a few minds about this. One is that this should have been the end of like the second episode of the season. Yes. Uh, and we should have just like seen the repercussions and then we could have had a nice tidy ending at the end of season two and no more. Um, I think that I like your read that this, you know, and I think it, it's in the show that this is them being like, wow, we've really failed Bonnie on this regard. Um, and then them unifying around her. I kind of wish that more of why they had failed her had been teased out and maybe some of the stuff about her otherness in this group of white women um, was, was teased out more. Um, and I also think with regard to season three, like, okay, so they do that, but then what, you know, it, it's my understanding that in the original book, they do confess and then they're, everyone just says it was self-defense and they kind of get off. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I, just, I don't know. I don't see where else these narratives go beyond like another trial. Right. I don't I like, um, let's see, let's, let's tease this out really quickly. Renata's new single life. Um, right. Jane and Corey's relationship. Um, Madeline and Ed's second chapter. Um, Bonnie inherits Bonnie her without- mother's second sight. Sauce <laughs> crimes, medium style. Wait, I just want to see that spinoff. That's it. Just Zoe Kravitz. Forget everyone else. Like I, I just, Fox, Fox recurs like as a, a ghost character who like mentors. Ghost her. mom. Yes. Call it, call it ghost mom. Mm. Love it. Love it. Greenlit. Absolutely. Um, you know, and Celeste. Yeah, I just don't, I don't know. Like Celeste represents the gang again. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, it's, it's a, a good man, you know, and Shane navigates. Corey becoming, you know, a sort of stand-in father Ziggy. Like there, I guess there is stuff there, but then it really starts to settle into more traditional. I mean, this is such a, I shouldn't even say domestic drama, but you know what I mean? Like it settles into more sort of familiar TV storylines. Um, right. And I, I don't want to see that really at all. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little interested in the kids. I'll say this. I think a lot of those kid actors are really good. And I'm interested in like Chloe's future or whatever, but, um, but, you know, like Meryl, I don't think is coming back from San Francisco. So, you no. know, do we have whose whose mom have we not met? <laughs> like Renata's mom, Laura Dern's mom comes to town and it's. Well, I mean, she's got a mom played. built in. No, Diane Ladd. So, uh, oh, and, and, and you have Brewster's dad. Brewster. Yes. Um, so that would be Dern exciting. Fam. Um, do it. You know, and then I don't know. Reese's mom could be played by anyone from. Well, Shirley MacLaine, Mary Kate Place, Mary Steenburgen, Candace Bergen. I mean, we could really. Yeah. There's a lot that could be done there. Big Little Moms. uh, Yeah. Season three. (laughs) That's that's the new Meet the Fockers. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just cheapen this thing as much as we can now. All right. We go now to our conversation with Purnajaga Nathan, who played Katie Richmond, the lawyer who was hired by Celeste. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Hi, Porna. How are you? 
I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Thank you for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Oh my God. Thank you for inviting me to the chat. Absolutely. Um, let me just dive right in. Um, I just want to yeah. kick off. I want to start by asking you um, what your reaction was when you found out you were cast on this project. Oh, I had to go into physical therapy right away because my <laughs> shoulders were so crunched up from both the absolute joy and the complete overwhelming sense of stress <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, that the news brought. Uh, it, it was really both. It was it was crushing stress and crushing joy at the same time. It's definitely the most elitist cast in the world, um, you know, and, and, and stepping into that world was, um, you know, was, 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 you know, both, both, both sides of the coin. So when you you get your script and you're looking at your script and you're thinking, yeah, okay, I get to, you know, oh, I talked to, I talked to Nicole Kidman a bit. Okay. I'm in scenes with Meryl Streep. Oh, I get to sit here front row for this scene yeah. in a courtroom where Meryl and yeah. Nicole Kidman go at it. What was, what was that knowing that like for you? It was, uh, I mean, you know, it was the, I would have taken this role no matter what I would have taken an invitation to be part of this cast and the story, no matter what I'm really, uh, first of all, intensely drawn towards stories that have a, uh, a, a theme of sexual violence in them, and you know, this is not only the theme um, in it, but also done so beautifully and so uh, in such a moving way. Um, and uh, it, you know, I, I do say it was front row tickets to the best acting in the entire world, and I know for sure that my acting shifted after um, after after seeing. Uh, the courtroom scenes, I just in terms of how, you know, because as an actor, you see, you have the script in front of you, you know what the lines are, and then you see them completely interpret lines differently mm-hmm. and handle the scenes differently and go at it constantly in different ways. Um, that was, I, I never expected to see something like that in my life. Yeah, so I was, um, I'm, I'm given to understand that there was, you know, room for improvisation or looser takes on the script, uh, in this particular shooting environment. Um, you know, is that, is that something you witnessed? Is that something you got to experience? Did you get to improvise? How did, how did that work with the script and what? <laughs> so I will say, I will caveat all that I'm saying is that the courtroom scene, uh, had no improv in it. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Everyone very much stuck to the words um and uh it was also one of the tensest sets it's one of the most emotional and tensest sets uh that i've been on during that, during those days that we shot the courtroom scenes um and i think uh yes and it, you know this this show comes from a culture of improv as well it's really encouraged i didn't see that much of it because you know most of my um most of my scenes are within the um, uh, or, you know, within the courtroom. Right. So, so yes, I, he- I hear that's the case. Um, <laughs> You're like, allegedly, I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I mean, of course, you know, Nicole would, I mean, with Nicole, like I have definitely seen actors not get out of characters. You know, I've, I've worked with John Turturro and, you know, he, the, the, I've seen that before, but I've never seen 
a character move in on an actor, you know? So, so, so that was the main difference. So, so yes, before the scenes, Nicole would improv before the scene starts, get into, um, you know, to get a, get an engine running under the scene. And, you know, the first time she did it, I, I, I was completely blindsided. And I, I, all I know in improv is like, uh, like she would plead the fifth. Like that's all I know from like law and order and all that stuff. Right. <laughs> so then I, you know, like, like I don't know how to improv as a, as a lawyer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I immediately went and called lawyers and judges and, you know, just, just trying to get a much more outside language from what was written. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. You know, you were, you were involved in, um, Night of did a great performance of Night of, yeah. which is a you know a, you. a legal based show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I did have some lawyer friends watching these Big Little Lies courtroom scenes and saying like this is not how it's done, and I'm like okay, but you mm-hmm. know we're allowed to have some poetic mm-hmm. license. It's fiction. We're gonna you know mm-hmm. do the law mm-hmm. how we want to do yeah. it. Well, you know what yeah. what degree did you do you think that sort of freedom with how law actually is practiced in in the courtroom you know, is fine for a TV show. And when you were calling up your lawyer or, or judge or whatever consultants were any of them like, this isn't how it's done. And you're like, sure. But if it were, how would I do it? There was definitely a judge who couldn't get past, who couldn't get past the scene. Like, she was so amazing. But, you know, it took a while for her right. to say, this is not how it's done. Are you kidding? Like, <laughs> all of them wouldn't be allowed in the, um, you know, like there's a scene where all the women join Celeste after the hearing's gone really badly. Yeah. And uh, she's like, I can't, I can't. There's no way this would be allowed. <laughs> so, you know, it took a really long time to kind of loosen them up and said, okay, suppose, suppose. Right. Um, yeah. So, so. For sure. There is creative licenses and, um, you know, just in terms of language and format, of course. David um, you know, Kelly is a, is a, is a master of, of, of this universe and so can play around with it for, for dramatic effect. For, for courtroom suspense. Um, yeah. Some people uh, in universe, yeah. in the show itself, and and maybe some of the fans think mm-hmm. that your character Katie is not a good lawyer. Do you think Katie is a good lawyer? Do you think she's doing a good job? My favorite detail on Katie is that Meryl Streep's lawyer, played so beautifully by Dennis O'Hare, yeah. says to Meryl, "Look, here is a list of the top ten lawyers in the area. Call them and conflict them out." Um, you know, and I love that detail. I think, um, this is my take. I think Katie's a really good family lawyer. However, this is not a typical family law case. It's kind of a criminal custody, uh, hybrid. And, um, uh, you know, something that is very much outside of a wheelhouse and the, um, you know, I think she's known to be kind and smart and nurturing, but you kind of need another personality to deal with uh, the criminal court case, which is uh, which is which is really true. Like you see the difference in personality between family lawyers and criminal lawyers, and it's really significant. I went to both. Um, I went to both. You know, um, courthouses, both mm-hmm. types of courthouses, and yeah. they had. 
different energy that lawyers a different energy family court lawyers are much more I would say you know there's there's a feeling that they're much more um, play the role of friend of therapist of nurturer um, than you see happening in the, in the criminal criminal law systems. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, 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 I think a lot of it comes down to style and what, what style suits what. And, um, yeah. Katie, Katie never yeah. strikes me as incompetent. A lot of her advice seems really correct. You know, like, don't, yeah. don't lose it. They're trying to make you lose it. Don't lose it. You know, all of that. I'm like, yes, yeah. Katie, you got this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. She, I think she's, you know, they're up against a hard case mm-hmm. and she has a very volatile client. So right, those right. two things are exceptionally hard. And I think, you know, the fact that Celeste is a lawyer, we talked about this a lot with Andrea, you know, why would Katie take a case like this? It's fraught. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, you know, she must have come into it with the understanding that Celeste is a lawyer, meaning, you know, you're going to settle. Like, that's what lawyers know happens. So there is a feeling Katie must know, must have known or must have felt that there's no way Celeste, is, you know, wants this to go to court. Um, and, you know, there's this whole thing that's obviously not not paid up, but Andrea, um, Andrea really wanted to plant that seed in us, which is, uh, you know, Katie's own background, why she's drawn to family law, and perhaps because of what she's been through, why she's drawn to Celeste's case in, in particular. I so, know, yeah. So with those. I, I know that advocacy um, uh, around sexual violence, as you already mentioned, has been something that you've been quite interested in, in the theater and the projects you pick. Um, yes. Oh, thanks for reading up on that. I appreciate you, it. Yeah, and, and I'm just curious, you know, what, what you see, you've already mentioned a little bit, but Maybe a little more in depth what you see in Big Little Lies, how it's changing the conversations we have around this sort of thing and, and what good it's doing um, sort of beyond the fun, soapy, look at all these actresses uh, we love together on the screen. I think Big Little Lies is really a vital um, entrance into the Me Too conversation. I mean, I, I, I believe it, it was shot before uh, the Me Too movement um, yeah, hope. season one was. I, I, yeah, correct. it was. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So you know, I I, I do believe that. Um, which is you know, I, I felt this uh, during the during the night of, which is it's 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 a show that actually took a long time to come out, but is, but but it came out during uh, the, the zeitgeist of 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 of, of, of topics like Islamophobia and the prison system um, were being talked about. So it it suddenly seemed hugely relevant and it's a really good show but the time that it came out in amplified its message and I right. think it's the same for Big Little Lives and it's, it's beautiful and you know season two continues to do that a beautiful portrayal of the complexity of um, of sexual violence and the complexity of justice um, that is given to sexual violence um, Survivors and Mary Louise, in many ways, is of course an unbelievable character, but also represents the um, also holds in her the the elements of what society thinks about survivors: the not wanting to believe, the being in denial, the um, the the, pull, the wanting to pull the rug uh, underneath a, a survivor, the, the need to protect um, you know the predator. All that is just 
it, it, it's it's you know it's beautifully played in, in season two. And what do you think about the decision to make that character that that skeptic, that voice of skepticism, um, a female character? Because I think we're used to seeing that from male characters. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's definitely true that there are women, especially women, like circling the wagons around their sons, who yeah. um, who behave this way. So what? Yeah, what do you think of that choice? I think it's a hugely human one because uh, she's a mom. Uh, I have no idea what I would do in that situation if I was a mom. If I was a mom, you know, I think all bets are kind of off. Um, but as a mom, she represents something bigger. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, the the. I know this is especially true uh, in India, where the, um, the 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 beacons of patriarchy are also the women. Um, and the shift that needs to take place in terms of mindset are among both genders, not only one. So, um, so yeah, she, you know, Meryl played it with so much. I mean, the character is great. She's so unfiltered, but she played it with so much humanity. You know, I often, I often tell the story where she, you know, as an actor, when you play a, a villainous character, of course, the thought is you can't ever think of your character as a villain. You have to see the humanity in them, which is definitely how Meryl played it. But I've never seen an actor being so protective about their character because of this reason. You know, as like, you know, if you're on set and the director, the producer, the writer say something, you will step out of character, you know, take the notes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then go back in. That's just that's just what I've seen. Right. And um, Meryl was it's not that she wouldn't entertain any comments. She just wouldn't entertain any comments that were uh, insinuated um, that she was the villain of the piece or wanted you know any comments that wanted to up ask her to up the ante on the villainess. She was just very protective of her of her character. And what does that look like when she, um, and I'm wondering if you as an actress are taking notes, ah, this is how to, how to <laughs> say, say no say, to a note. <laughs> she would literally say, that's none of your business. Oh, okay. I yeah. loved, I, I, I literally did a double take and she's not saying that out of being rude or anything. She just has to protect the integrity and the humanity of her character. That's the place she was coming from. That's none of your business. That's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna write it down. I'm gonna use it sub point when someone asks me. Yeah, to. Um, me too. <laughs> watch watch me get fired so fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. You have to be a Meryl in order to pull that off. Okay. Um, totally. Totally. <laughs> I wanted to ask you another um, another theme that is explored in this season yeah. that I think was sort of mm-hmm. pushed to the side in season one was this question of. Um, white affluence, the fact that like four of these women are white and one mm-hmm. is not. And, you know, mm-hmm. what that, what that means for Bonnie, why, why this community is isolating for her. And then, the, you know, there are a few other characters, uh, you know, in the season, the police detective, a teacher, something mm-hmm. like that who's not white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what does it mean? Do you, how does this inform your character's role to be a non-white woman dealing with like, you know, this, this white family drama in this town? Oh my God. It's such a, such a hard question to answer. I got to tell you, you know, when I first watched season one, I didn't watch it. I just watched an episode of it. I'd obviously heard about it, but I just wasn't drawn to uh, watching something with so many white people in it. 
I, you know, my viewing habits have changed and what I want to support and what I don't want to support at all. Um, you know, it, it, it affects me. And then I saw, you know, a couple of episodes on a plane and I was so drawn to this beyond, um, you know, uh, beyond uh, races, themes of motherhood and sexual violence and vulnerability. And, you know, they, they, I immediately, immediately related to them. It, it's a powerful thing for them to have done that. Cause I'm, you know, pretty skeptic. Cool. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wish, I wish they had explored it, uh, in a more full way. I got to tell you, mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's a very white community. I know that's the reality of it, but um, but I do wish they had explored it much um, much deeper. Uh, I'd read somewhere that uh, Zoe yeah. know, had suggestions on on the fact that you know she's she's married to a white guy, and there's definitely no comments about it. And in reality, there'd be a lot of comments about it. And I I agree with that. There the the otherness is not explored as um, it's a very well-written show and some scenes and characters are underwritten. That's definitely what I feel. And um, the aspect of color is introduced, but not fully explored. And then, uh, you know, to that end, if there were a season three, you know, I've been, a- well, I've been asked, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, they're already talking about like, you know, Nicole Kidman gave an interview. Being, I like, know. We'd love to do a season three. So if there were a season three, like, oh, is, is that among? I got to yeah. tell you, yeah. I, I watched, because I read the script and yeah. I watched yesterday's um, uh, episode and I was like, oh my God, there might be a season three. It's not, well, well it's not the script I got. Oh, what was the, you know? what was the difference in the script you got? Um, I can't tell you, but you know, one character doesn't even make it. One character like dies. Um, you know, I, uh, it's a different script, uh, than, than what I got. And it's, it, it, uh, left the door, this version left the door open on something I thought that was definitely closed. So I found that really interesting. The first time, the first time I, I, I uh, knew about it. Watching it was the first time you knew about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, this is such a, this is a show because of all the like dreamlike cuts and the way that it's edited. This is a show that mm-hmm. I can imagine the version you have in your mind when you're shooting it, when you actually watch it for yourself is quite different. Yes. Um, yeah. Was that, was that your experience throughout where you're like, Oh, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that that's what was going to happen there sort of thing. hundred percent. I actually thought, yeah, hundred percent. I thought the editing was, uh, you know, I know it's come under uh, a lot of politics and criticism, uh, but I, I, I was really surprised at uh, the editing and the movement of the uh, of the of the you know the flow of the episode. I thought was great because of the editing. And you know, to that discussion about the editing and Andrea Arnold and the directing, um, I'm just mm-hmm. like what you know, what your observations were of the of the mood around Andrea on the set or working with her, what your personal experience was around that. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, obviously this happened after shooting. Right. Um, I, I didn't see any of it on set and it was quite the opposite. You know, I thought, you know, I, 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 I the courtroom scene is, is really, it, 
again, as a viewer, I'm not sure how it plays, but sitting in the um, sitting in the courtroom was really brutal and really triggering for many people, including me. It was a really hard thing to sit through for those many yeah. days, especially as uh, Celeste plays the video. It's brutal, and they didn't show as much, you know, of it as they did um, during the during the filming of it. But it's really brutal. Um, and, and so Andrea would come between takes and to give directions. She'd be like, her eyes would be red. She'd be crying. There'd be, you know, the camera operator was crying. Everyone was weeping. It's a, it was a very comfortable female-led set. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it yeah. was, it was, it was sitting in its femininity. And, you know, Andrea was really uh, directing from her heart and directing from, the importance um, of the subject matter at hand, and she was moved um, uh, throughout it. She was moved throughout the process. I've never seen that. I've, I've been, you know, in, on so many sets where the material is hard, but the director always, you know, is is just a step removed because I get it. They're, you know, this, this whatever, they, whatever, <laughs> but, and they're just, sunk into the material and that's what I think that's what everyone really felt on set her her, her, her crew and, and the cast just felt that the material was in the hands of someone who really cared and I know I've, I've heard um, women performers say that before that like you really cannot mm. underestimate the impact of having a woman director just in terms of like there are things you don't have to worry about. There are things that are automatically going to be understood that don't need to be explained mm-hmm. or lost in translation. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's just the benefit mm-hmm. of that. Not to say that like everything needs to be directed by a woman, but in on certain subjects, it's helpful to have a, you know, a woman behind the camera on it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, 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 again, I've had many, many female directors behind the camera. Yeah. I've never had something like this before. That's amazing. I've, I mean, every time she'd come to give direction, like just seeing her would um, would change the change change the environment constantly. And so then, you know, I you know, I don't I don't want you to feel like you have to say anything that you don't want to say or anything that might you know upset anyone. But I'm just, no, I you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Like what your reaction was then, given that that was your experience with her, what your reaction was then to hearing, uh, you know, this news about the way things have been handled, sort of in post production. I mean, I was really saddened by the news. Um, I also have worked with HBO before. And I also know that any piece of information is always very complicated. And it's not that there's two sides, it's multiple sides. So right. um, obviously, if, if I, I was saddened by the fact that Andrea perhaps didn't have uh, a fully fleshed out experience, because I think she's a genius and I think uh, the material is great. But I, I also am fully in the, in the awareness that I don't know the full story. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's that was my sort of takeaway from reading uh, the piece that went up in IndieWire. Is just sort of like I feel like mm-hmm. I know some of the story now. I would like mm-hmm. to hear from other parties, mm-hmm. and I would like to know the yeah. whole story. You know, so um, yeah, we'll see if anyone yeah. wants to tell it. Um, Pony, ponies <laughs> up the the things. I mean, I mean, I I, I you know because the night off was so drawn out and was right. so political and it was so crazy that. Um, that, you know, we knew the insider details of what was happening was not what was in the press. Right, um, 
you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's things in reality are so much more complicated and it's, it's a shame because, uh, you know, she's a genius and, um, you know, it seems it's a, the, the whole notion of female empowerment, female led and all things is tainted, but I, you know, I for one definitely can't speak on on the other side. Right. Um, and then, you know, let me circle back to this other question and then I will let you go. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. Is Oh my um... <laughs> God, my pleasure. Thanks for all these great questions. Well, you know, if, if there is a season three, uh, given now this new ending that leaves <laughs> things open, yeah. um, you know, yeah. whether, whether or not Katie's involved in the future, you know, what are you hoping, what themes are you hoping big lies might explore in the future? Oh my God, what a great question. Um, I think, you know, there's, um, there's what happens with, uh, Madeline and Ed, what, what happens when there's been betrayal of, uh, humongous proportions and how to move forward after that. There's, yeah, I don't know about you. There's been, there's just been a, a, a very, soft shift um, that I felt happening and maybe it's happening, you know, a- around me a lot, which is before if something happened, the, the, cl- the clear mandate is to leave your partner. Right. And right. I think the language has shifted around that. that I, I, I feel it. I feel like we're trying to figure it out or we're becoming more conscious about uh, talking about how to figure stuff out. Um, better. So I'm really, I'm really, um, you know, I'm looking forward to exploring what it means to move beyond a massive betrayal um, with Celeste. And again, you know, motherhood and what does it look like to be highly flawed and highly messy. And, you know, mothers are portrayed mostly as a little tidier than what they are in Big Little Lies. And certainly I felt like, is it a good idea to have her have the kids for sure, you know, for right. time. And <laughs> right. there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely that aspect that's introduced, right? And mm-hmm. she admits it herself. But what does it mean to be a highly flawed um, a mother in a very, very messy situation and, and, and mother regardless? Um, you know, that's, I, I'd love to see that as well. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time, for your great work, um, and for your honesty. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. in summation that we want to say I mean like what about for people who have somehow made it all the way through this episode of our podcast but actually really liked Big Little Lies um, you know maybe maybe you were watching I, I mean I don't know we're all allowed to like what we like maybe you're watching the show for like something else like there was something else you loved on it you loved the memes you loved the gifts you loved whatever maybe there was maybe you more personally relate to what Celeste goes going through so it resonated more with you stuff like that um, I think I just I just want to say in summation that I was like I was really rooting for season two um i really wanted it to be worth it and um in the end i think it just does a disservice to season one and i wish they had left well enough alone yeah i wish they'd left well enough alone i i I think that i wish they had maybe i mean yes there were two years between the seasons i wish they'd taken more time um to really 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 figure out something intricate but befitting of the first novel you know um or, or you know 
not not dishonoring the first novel. Um, and yeah, I think if you enjoyed it, great. Like, I think that, you know, you and I, Joanna, are going into this in granular detail and sort of, uh, you know, making it our jobs to kind of analyze things and, and, and nitpick things. Um, plenty of people, I believe our own TV critics, Sonia Soraya, enjoyed the last episode and, and I think the season overall. And, um, you know, and I, and look, I like Laura Dern memes too. We like, I, like this stuff is all fun. I had, I had fun watching this show this season. I think I just know in my heart of hearts that it could have been better. And, and that's what's, that's what's frustrating. I think that like, you know, if, if, if I didn't think there was anything worthy, I wouldn't demand anything of it, you know, or expect anything yeah, of it. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing is, is I, I know it can be great because it was great. Uh, and I know everyone involved in this show from, you know, behind the scenes to on camera, um, can be excellent. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, the, uh, I don't know, not that they're listening to this, but like, I think that you and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think we think of it as kind of constructive criticism. You know, it's, it, it's, we're not hating on the show. Um, I have no, I haven't, I take no pleasure in like, you know, bashing it or whatever. Um, it's just like, eh, could have been, could have been great. And it was just fine. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just <laughs> this is, this is a, a thought that I have that, you know, makes me feel like a bad feminist, but I'm going to say it anyway. I just wish they had waited for John Mark Valet. Like we loved Big Little Lies season one. We love sharp objects. Like, yes, I believe in women telling women's stories and like that, but John Mark Valet just really did a great job with subject matter. Um, I think probably what happened to Andrew Arnold was, you know, uh, I'm really, I feel really feel for her. At the same time, like all of this could be avoided if they had just waited for Jean-Marc Vallée, which I think is what they should have done. Um, yeah. He really, it cannot, it cannot be understated his ability to shape something. And so, you know, that's, that's my uh, cool take. On and this, and on Andrea this. Arnold, you know, has directed television before, like she did Transparent and I Love Dick. But I would imagine that those are very different, um, th- that these are very, very different working environments than, than this, you know? Um, yeah. And but but the films that made Andrea Arnold big, uh, you know, American Honey, Wuthering Heights, Fish Tank, Red Road, these were all movies that really felt found by her. You know, yeah, she yeah, found yeah. that these kind of actors we hadn't really heard of or had just started hearing of or who had never acted before, and like, you know, like like she builds worlds. Andrea Arnold does, and this is not that. And I and I so I hope that this is not. Um, in any way tainted her trajectory or like, you know, like, you know, derailed it at all because she is really one of the most exciting directors out there. If you have not, anyone listening to this has not seen her earlier films, you really should go out, seek them out. American Honey, I know at least is on Netflix. Um, she's wonderful. And then, and I think you'll watch that, see the full breadth of what she can do and be like, Oh my God, like yeah. she, she should be able to do whatever she wants. That said, I agree with Joanna. I think that this is John Mark Foley's show. I, I think that like, Absolutely. It, 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 and it's it, not, it's, it, I'm glad you said that. I, it's not at all a knock on Andrea Arnold. No. I think she's no. fantastic. I just think she, as you say, is like better suited for a different kind of thing. And she was never going to be the person to pick up someone else's style and sort of like ape it in any way. And what you really needed was the dreamy sort of thing that Valet does. And only he does. Yeah. She does something else and it's incredible, but it is not this. So, you know. No, in a way, I, it's almost weird that she's involved in it because from you know, based on stuff she's done before, you're like, oh, she must hate these people, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> it, was a, 
it's so funny because like one of the I will say this and this is this is the moment of the IndieWire article that may be like, wait, who's writing this and who's giving this information? Because there's like um you know, the, the interviews aren't like sourced, but there's also, there's some like, uh, I don't know, editorializing in there. Anyway, the, the writer says something like, you know, the idea that Andrea Arnold could be the one to match, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's style, if that was always their intention, speaks to a huge misreading of what it is Andrea Arnold actually does right. well. Right. Like whoever thought those two styles would mesh really, really got it wrong. Yeah. And I think that that's correct. So what I would know. say is something I heard a lot throughout this season of this show uh, uh, when, when, when it came to criticism was I wish that they had just kept this same team and done something different, found a different book, found different material to do and, you know, have everyone play different characters. You can still have the same actorly dynamic to some extent, but like at least we're not just kind of rehashing past glory to that end. Again, going back to American Honey, if Andrea Arnold wants to take these five actresses in a van as like on a kind of music scored road trip around America, that would be, I think, the highest box office grossing movie of all time. That's that's my fearless forecast. Better than better than Endgame. I love it. My and and like my feeling about Big Little Lies is that it should have been. Yeah, like it should have been an anthology show. I feel that about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, don't make it a second season. I I see that you feel like you've struck gold, and you have. You can work together again. Just do something else. I feel that way about <laughs> the know? news. Get rid of this story. Give me a new one. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was that was like a beautiful Chris and Wig sort of reading of that. Um, anyway, <laughs> I hope you were doing like a thumb I sort of. It's late. Uh, All right. We did it. I've had nearly a bottle of rosé, so that's not how I usually podcast for Vanity Fair. But hey, it's Big Little Lies night, so why not? Um, All right, Richard, until we come back for Succession on August 11th, where can folks find you? Driving the van with Andrea Arnold and the cast of Big Little Lies around America. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where else would I be? Uh, Well, I'll also be on Twitter and and BF.com. Joanna, where where will you be until we visit the uh, terrible lives of the media elite? Um, I'll be helping Renata, I guess, burn every single um, thing that Gordon owns. Oh, good. I mean, that sounds like we fun. wanted that waiting to Do exhale you- moment, and we didn't. We guess I so we sort of got it. But- we sort of got it. Uh, do you think his tracksuits are flammable? I don't know. They probably are. He's <laughs> Is quite he rich. Flammable? I'm sure they burn. <laughs> I was like, for a split second when she connected with his midsection, I was like, "Is Renata actually going to kill? I- accidentally going to kill Gordon?" I thought that was going to be the season three thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Is that big lie? Season yeah. three? Renata accidentally kills Gordon?" Anyway, um, all the men of Monterey die at some point or another at the hands of these five menaces. Um, you can also find me at VanityFair.com. Uh, I covered some Comic-Con stuff, and I will be at TCA, the Television Critics Association, uh, some press tour this coming week. You can hear both of us on Little Gold Men, and you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, where I will be admiring your Renata memes. Uh, and we will see you August 11th. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 